This is our first time doing a podcast together. Let's do a let's do an on mic high five. <laughs> yeah, one more time. Oh my goodness! Have you never high five before? There's no such thing as a three way high five. You're right. I was thinking of cartoons. Well, then we're gonna have to two. Yes, we nailed it. <laughs> All right. We wish you could have been here, Jared. We wish that. you could have been. That was amazing. I I, I was transported audio leave to high <laughs> five. I, I, I was there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Z Prime on the Grid, a show about issues concerning the energy industry. We're out here today on lovely Lake Austin for a team retreat. But we're still bringing you some hot Z Prime podcasting action. But you might hear a boat or two, or maybe a jackhammer, or potentially a broken glass knowing us. So I'm sorry if any of that sound, sound gets picked up. Uh, anyway, I'm Dylan Lockwood. I'm Z Prime's online content editor. Uh, I'm joined by head of content and research, Christine Richards. How are you enjoying the lake, Christine? Uh, it's It's been pretty nice here, Dylan. Uh, I live up in Denver, so it's it's cool to be down here. Um, where it's it's nice and warm, a uh, little humid for me, but but overall overall pretty good. I like the humidity; it's good for my skin. <laughs> uh, also with us is research analyst Aaron Hardick. What have you been up to this week? Not much. Um, I live here in Austin. I don't come out this this far west too often. It, it is a lot more humid out on the lake. I tried to run yesterday, and I ran probably half the distance that I normally <laughs> yeah. ran, but was three times as sweaty, I think. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's nice to get some fresh air and nice to see my coworkers because I don't get to do that too often. Yeah, we're a very virtual company. It's the first time we've <laughs> recorded one of these podcasts all in the same room. We also enjoyed meeting Aaron's dog, Ralph, who has been on the podcast before. <laughs> uh, she's adorable, though. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about smart homes, design, and the digital future, which are all key ETS themes, as it were. And if you haven't yet registered uh, for the Energy Thoughts Summit happening March 26th through 29th in Austin, uh, you can head on over to ETS18.co. That's ETS18.co. Our guest today is Jared Huke, who is the founder and CEO of Daito Design Group. How are you doing today, Jared? Just great. Thank you. Now, smart homes are always a favorite topic of thought leaders in this industry. Even as the term smart grid has fallen out of favor, the smart home or interconnected home is still something of a love child for forward-thinking energy folks. The appeal is simple. Customers like the idea of energy efficiency and easy data access, while utilities like easy monitoring of usage and outage prediction and all the predictive models being applied in real time. So, Christine, we'll start with you. What is the promise of the smart home from an industry perspective and also from a consumer perspective? I mean, I think that we've really had a, a, a conversation going on in the industry of, of what role people and, and industries really play in, in the smart home. So, I mean, I think from the industry side, there's, there's still a big question around, you know, what role are they going to play? Um, you know, and when I say industry, I, I'm talking primarily utilities. Um, you know, how much are they going to be involved? Uh, you know, how much is it going to be third party providers um, who are really driving the innovation in in smart and connected homes? Uh, and then what's the role of the consumer, right? I mean, how much is the consumer really driving it? How involved are they in it? You know, how much do they really want it? 
Um, we talk a lot in the industry about customer engagement, but but really, you know, how involved are our customers at this point? Um, it's it's a big question that we've we've seen. Aaron, uh, according to to our data, you you uh, were on a webinar talking about this recently. Uh, less than forty five percent of utilities have a clear plan for how they will participate in the connected home. Where is the apprehension coming from? What are the difficulties? I think it's figuring out that partnership between the technology providers and the utilities, you know, who owns that data, who's doing the controlling and monitoring of the devices that are in the consumer's homes. How does that partnership really play out? So we did some research on the connected home, which is why um, we recently had a webinar over it. And like you said, that data point of 45% of utilities don't really know their strategy. When I was interviewing someone for our research, um, he said, you know, our job is to allow the consumers to put any device they want into their home. We want to give them that ability. And then we're here to really create the management and strategy around allowing them to do that. And so I think the big picture is there, but yeah, it's fleshing it out and figuring uh -huh. out what is that strategy? How do we actually allow the consumer to put the smart water heater, the smart thermostat, the smart lighting system in their home because they want to? How do utilities do that? Yeah, and it's, it's definitely going to be much more of an, an ecosystem as opposed to just, you know, one group like a utility or you know, a third party provider, you know, just with all the complexity and the, the regulatory constraints and things like that, um, you know, everyone's really going to have to work together to, to make it happen on a significant level. So just to sort of take off uh, on that point, I think that the, the fact that a lot of the utilities don't have a plan is because the, the problem of smart homes hasn't really been solved. Um, if you look at the, the construction of a home or a house, you know, it, it, right now we have a strategy which is, is similar to consumers picking out what two by fours they want and what kind of insulation they want and all of this. You, you put a lock here, you put a water heater there, you put uh, light bulbs here. And consumers aren't asking for a smart home. They're asking for a smarter way of living. They're looking for a smarter experience. And so to this point, I don't think that there's any company that's been in a position to create a unified experience. You see, you know, uh, aspirations that way with, you know, HomeKit and, um, and, and this idea of creating a, a smarter or a brain that, that can drive some of this smart experience, but it's still very much in its infancy. So I, I suspect that a lot of the utilities are taking a wait and see before they invest heavily on a system that may be deprecated by, you know, whatever comes out next. Um, so I think that's some of the, the reticences. It, that problem hasn't been solved. So how, how do you how do you move forward when you, you only um, control sort of a piece of, of that puzzle? Yeah, I mean, that, that price aspect, uh, I mean, that's got to be a big hurdle to overcome because not only is new technology expensive to integrate for utilities, but, uh, you know, a smart water heater costs a lot for a customer whose home doesn't already have one. So there's kind of a paywall. And as such, smart homes could be seen as kind of a luxury. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, absolutely. And there, there, uh, Coco Chanel actually said that, um, you know, uh, the opposite of luxury is, is not um, poverty, but is, is actually vulgarity. And so to that same point, the, the experience right now, is a, it's a luxury price point, but it is not a very uh, luxurious experience. Um, Mark Rolston of Argo Design actually wrote a great article about how he spent four hours updating the firmware on his light bulbs. Um, that in of itself is why this experience is not really there. And then the, the price 
to um, sort of reward ratio is, is way off. If you invest in a lot of, you know, all of the state-of-the-art smart appliances and, and all of these things, you have huge capital outlay, and then you may cut your electricity bill by, you know, $20, maybe $50, $100 on a larger home or something like that, but that doesn't necessarily give you that payback um, that, that makes it a, a clear economic decision uh, outside of sort of the luxury experience um, decision. Jared, one question I had, um, I think you brought it up when you're talking about, we haven't yet seen someone who can create that ecosystem of this more convenient, connected life. One thing Christine and I like to, like to talk about are partnerships within utilities. So when you're talking about building this ecosystem, who has to be part of the, these partnerships now? Is it architects as well? Are we bringing in, you know, yeah. home builders in I mean, I, if you're talking about a unified uh, experience, the, the more you're able to unify, the more you're able to sort of from the concept level of a home and then the, the execution and ongoing maintenance and running of that home, the more parts of that chain that you're able to control with the participants in that ecosystem, the more efficiency and the more effectiveness that you're going to gain. So absolutely builders and, and uh, at the simplest level are architects that are more sort of elevated level, uh, the utilities, um, obviously the software creators as well as the hardware components need to be done in concert. So there needs to be sort of a unified vision for what that experience should be that is able to conduct all of the members of the orchestra towards you know, the beautiful music of, of, of a great uh, and, and efficient home. Um, I think that utilities are uh, maybe missing an opportunity to lead in this area. They're, they're kind of playing, um, and maybe that's due to, to uh, regulatory constraints or things of that nature, are playing sort of a wait and see, when in reality, utilities have one of the most trusted uh, long-term relationships with consumers of any product or service um, you know, in, in the country. Uh, with some unity and clarity of vision, they, that smart home vision from the, from the uh, generation to consumption chain, that could be something that is owned by utilities. But that's, that's a very sort of you know, progressive and, um, and sort of directed stance that I, I don't think a lot of utilities are, are used to taking that position. Now, Jared, do you see, I mean, really, we're talking about the connected home here and, and, and taking more of an energy slant with it. Do you see the connected home really taking off in, in other aspects of home automation? Um, I mean, around entertainment, lighting, all those different things that, that are possible with a connected home? Or, I mean, do you think that the challenges are exclusive to energy or is it really just the connected home in general? No, I, I think that the, the connected home um, create, is a platform for all of the different sort of, you know, life events or living events that it, it would contain. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting is I, I, in talking with some of the Japanese utilities um, is that they have a, um, a, uh, a role in um, helping their, their aging population age in place, for example. So gerontology and just the, the idea of keeping people more um, uh, successfully in their home and out of you know, high-touch high nursing care or, or uh, elder care environments uh, is an interesting role for a utility. I was very surprised by that. But there's actually a role that if you know, an elderly person doesn't turn on the lights for a couple of days, they need to send somebody out to make sure that everything's okay there. Obviously, with a connected home, all of those services become a lot more um, 
more granular and, and more sort of high touch. Um, and how, how do you draw some of those lines in, in you know, in the privacy and security space and, and things like that? I think that, you know, with, um, with a smarter home, and especially in this sort of aging population vein, um, you, you see that there's a lot of opportunity to, to let aging or, or mobility or, or other impaired uh, disabled people uh, live more effective lives, live more sort of capable lives, and, and create a, you know, a, uh, a healthier sort of support and communication that, that really does have the, the user or the, the homeowner uh, at the center of that ecosystem. So things like entertainment, uh, things like nutrition and, you know, local, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, agriculture or sort of aquaponics and things like that, sort of micro, uh, micro food systems, um, lighting. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of maintenance of homes that can be triggered and, and condensed. And, you know, that's where a lot of accidents and, and things like that in homes occur. So I think that if you really are designing a, a smart home experience and you, you focus on sort of the different personas that you're designing towards, all kinds of possibilities start to, to bubble up. And these can become very, um, very, I think, very huge opportunities for utilities to expand their role um, outside of just sort of the movement of electrons and, and into sort of the um, creating a, a successful, you know, modern uh, lifestyle, which energy has, um, uh, has become a more complex subject with, you know, local generation and, and all of that. But absolutely, I mean, the entertainment systems and lighting and, and all of these things are, are huge. I uh, just recently left the sprinklers on um, at, at our house when we were going to dinner, and I just I don't have a smart sprinkler system and I there was nine different ways I was trying to figure out how I could call the neighbors or figure out how I could get the sprinklers turned off and um, I, I, I I drew I had I had, a, I had nothing so um, I, I think that all of those little those little events especially when you take them in mass can have, have a huge input uh, impact on uh, sustainability uh, as well as overall quality of life if it makes economic sense and there's a high uh, high-touch uh, experience associated with it, then you're going to see um, those kind of plans, I think, moving to the forefront and start to become part of the, the large corporation strategies uh, for implementation. You know what the Jared's bit about the sprinklers being on reminds me of? Is that commercial, the old guy out walking his dog and there's a family at a dinner somewhere and the little kid gets a hold of the parent's phone and he's turning off and on like all of the lights and so the old man's on the street watching mm -hmm. this house like have this like spastic like seizural episode of lights going on and off just sporadically i, I feel but like that's there's like some orchestral music playing i think it's funny how things like a silly commercial like that can influence the way people think about the connected home I really liked uh, Jared's points around the experience versus just looking at it from that, you know, technological standpoint of, hey, you know, we have sensors, you know, we need to have this platform, but those personas, uh, the experience that people have, um, and really that that kind of life, that modern life that we're we're trying to to create, and, and what does that really look like, you know, and how do you visualize that? And I think, like you said, Aaron, I mean, it comes through in these these commercials that can be funny at times, um, but it's also just really building that in, in the mindset of people and, and really just trying to create that.
Yeah, there's a there's a wonderful French film called Mon Oncle, uh, My Uncle, and it's about a, a modern home. They're using push buttons, uh, you know, very Austin Powers kind of stuff. Um, and the, <laughs> the old sort of hillbilly uncle comes down uh, the mountain and just their home is going haywire all the time. I think it's a really important film for everyone who's getting into the smart home space to realize is that, you know, there's the intended use and then there's the incidental use and then there's the accidental and then there's the, you know, the uh, detrimental or, or hacker related, you know, events. You know, my uh, a former colleague of mine, he got smart locks put in and Comcast cut the line and there was some firmware update and he was stuck uh, in Houston on his porch with a you know newborn baby coming in from Ikea um, and couldn't get into his own house. These are the kind of events that are, are just entirely un- unacceptable for, for where smart homes are going. That isn't a smarter home, right? I mean, that's the redundancy and the resilience and, and the, the sort of recursive systems that would be required to make sure that those kind of events never occur aren't going to happen if you're just putting a, a product in a box on a shelf, right? It needs to have various levels of, of access um, around different uh, detriments. I mean, what we're seeing in, in places like Houston and Puerto Rico and all of the uh, climactic changes that we've had, smart homes you know, potentially could play a very active role in, in terms of um, being a tool for di- you know, disaster or event recovery and things like that. But right now, you know, we're, they're so fragile and brittle that um, even, you know, in the best of times, if your connection goes, you may lose access to so many of those things. I've been a bit huge advocate of really building these smart homes um, sort of around the, uh, the main breaker box and building sort of concentric circles out around those users' experience tying that and tethering that to that sort of central point and not making all of these systems sort of dependent on, you know, these, these thin lines of, of fragility. And, you know, and obviously with that, with that same system, you, you could uh, prevent, I, I have uh, two young children, the idea of them having any control over many of the things in my home uh, will keep me, keep me up tonight. So, um, yeah. you know, th- this is, this is, this is the way these things need to be designed is, what happens when that goes wrong? What happens when this goes wrong? How are these things able to be interdependent? Yeah, I think it's been interesting to be out at the this lake house and there's Wi-Fi here and we, you know, everyone's excited for Wi-Fi and we have probably 15 people who are all trying to get on the Wi-Fi and it's going really slow, you know, but I mean, that's okay. We're just, we're kind of just doing some work, looking, looking on the internet, you know, mm-hmm. at, at goofy energy stories. And uh, like, like you said, Jared, I mean, okay, well, you know, if the lock's not working, right? I mean, so we need to, I think we have an expectation right now that, you know, Wi-Fi's come and go, you know, cell comes and goes sometimes, and that, that's life. But when you're really relying on it for, for these very fundamental things you're talking about, we really can't, mm-hmm. we can't our tolerance for that is, is going to drop significantly. Well, and I think if you look at like bathrooms right now, like smart, uh, motion detected, um, you know, water uh, tickets, right? Those things are, um, those are now dependent upon electricity. Before, if the power went out, you could at least still get water. But now with, with the fragility that we've added to it, it's motion detected, which is great. That helps with uh, other things. But the reality is we've created a more fragile system as opposed to a more resilient system. And I think that all of these things will be overcome in time um, as, you know, we have new players sort of entering into these spaces all the time. And there's a lot of innovation that's coming from 
other areas. I mean, an example of that is, you know, Dyson, uh, you know, the, the vacuum cleaner and, and uh, wheelchair maker uh, is now entering into the electric car business. Um, that's very exciting. I mean, that's bringing a lot of sort of, uh, in, you know, not industrial, but, you know, utility um, lowercase you uh, of, of object design into a system that is the, the smart objects are usually designed by Silicon Valley startups at this point, and they have a, a much more cavalier um, appreciation for things like uptime and, and dependability and, and resilience. And so I think that as we start to see sort of the initial flash of smart objects move to more mature and more durable uh, smart objects, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see an improvement of the experience. I, I think there was a, a lock recently that uh, I, want, uh, I want to say it was purchased by Google, uh, and then Google decided that they're not, you know, they're not going to support it anymore. So all of a sudden you have a lock on your door, and you know, they're, they're going to give you a couple of months to change it out before they, they turn off services to it. I mean, that's the kind of thing that consumers are, are just not going to uh, appreciate, right? And so until those kind of things are overcome, until my lock will work independent of whether or not there's a cloud service or a connection or any of those things, uh, we're, we're going to keep running into these into these sort of hopefully not so uh, hopefully comical and not so tragic instances where people are locked out of their houses or you know their lights are flashing and uh, things like that. Jared, it's funny that you bring up the Dyson piece of information. I was actually reading about that last night and was talking about it with a few coworkers this morning at breakfast. And one of the guys on our sales team made the joke was, what, is you, as you drive the Dyson car down the street, does it clean it as well? And so it's funny because people, or I guess consumers, or those who aren't too familiar with electric vehicles and the way that affects infrastructure and just things like that, they don't understand how someone like Dyson can just be like, I'm going to make an electric vehicle now. How the heck does that work? And I, I mean, I'm struggling with that question, like, how, how are they going to do that? But this article that I was reading, they're talking about leveraging this brand that's well known for creating these well-made vacuums, high quality products, are spending capital um, that they have as an established company to innovate into a new space. And that's really interesting to me. Well, I mean, if you look at what Dyson's done, um, they've, I think his first major product was a wheelchair that could climb upstairs, right? And so that has a, there's a, you know, a lot of engineering that goes into that, obviously battery and weight uh, and balance and things like that are associated with it. With the, with the, um, the, he has the fans and the, um, and a vacuum technology. Uh, we have a Dyson at our house. It's a lightweight thing that you can hold in, you know, in one hand, battery powered so that you can, you know, clean air vents or things like that with a vacuum cleaner. It's, it's a very highly performant, lightweight, uh, energy efficient object. So the, the stretch to putting those same minds to reconcepting the car, they're not going to create a car out of a vacuum cleaner or something like that, which is, you know, it's good fun. And I, of course, I mean, what, what else could he expect, right? Um, in terms of the internet's response to that. But the, the reality is, is that the innovations that he's created in terms of battery technology, in terms of uh, lightweight materials um, and, you know, distribution channels and, and, um, and just the, the sort of uh, durability of constantly, you know, of spinning and moving parts and varying technologies and all of those, 
I mean, there's engineering scale and, uh, you know, regulatory compliance and, and things like that. I mean, cars are not simple objects. That's why we don't have 35 car makers in America. But I, I would think that they would come to it with a very different lens. And that is really where innovation starts, right, is not coming to it and say, we're going to take a one of the big three cars and we're going to take out the engine and put in a battery pack. It's let's start with the idea that we need to move people and we need energy to do that. And we need to have control on the road and safety and all of those things. And you start from a blank slate and that blank slate is what actually gives you the opportunity for reframing the problem statement. It's not a car with a battery in it. It's a new way of transporting people around, leveraging some of the great technology that, that that company has built. And that reframing of the problem statement is where real innovation happens because you're not just you're not coming in with these preconceived ideas of what what is a car. That's how we're gonna get to those jets and cars is by somebody saying, Well, it isn't a car, right? Wait, wait for the boat. <laughs> It, makes it, sense. it does. It does make sense. We're just waiting for a boat to pass. <laughs> uh, okay, waiting for a boat. Uh, yeah, the background noise doesn't show up at all on my side for what it's that's worth. Good. That's good. Um, it, that's good. That's good. Whatever I was generating. I think it's because of, se- it's of the setting I have it on. Yeah, turn off the boat setting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think the the danger is past with the boat. So, Jared, I mean, I love that that point around. Uh, rethinking that that problem statement and what it really is uh i think within the utility industry you know a lot of times looking at the the smart grid and investments made there you know people said oh you know here's a smart meter right or here's a meter um we're going to turn it into a smart meter and i feel like that's maybe what we're looking at in the connected home you know here here's a thermostat let's make that smart you know, here's a water heater, let's make that smart. And looking at sort of these these different components and, and making those more intelligent when, from what you're saying, I mean, it's also just rethinking, okay, well, what is that modern experience that, that people want to have? And, you know, how do we rethink that? And, you know, maybe it, the connected home becomes something that, that we don't fully understand at this point. And we really have to look through and, and figure out what it what it looks like and what components come together. And it may not be what we kind of see in homes today? I don't think it should be. I mean, you know, there's a a natural evolution of any sort of designed object, and it goes through sort of various stages of innovation. Like the the first photographs were staged photographs that looked just like the oil paintings that were popular at the time. Uh, The first car uh, hubcaps all had spokes on them, not because they needed spokes on them, but because horses and carriages all had spokes and they wanted it to look like the the preceding one so that the public would sort of accept it. So there is this sort of natural thing where we're okay, we're going to we're going to take a light bulb and we're going to make it a smart light bulb. We're going to take a thermostat and make it a smart thermostat. And that's the first stage of reconceptualization is just slight evolution of that. But at a certain point you end up with Teslas or you know virtual reality which are all sort of extended from those those original sources of 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 reconcepting what what this product is and and what it ultimately um, does. I do think that, you know, given the volatility of the age that we're in, I mean, the the politics and the, the, uh, you know, international conflicts and climate change and 
all of the fun stuff that we get to read about um, every day is a crisis creator, but in, in that lies the opportunity to rethink how we're going to prepare for the next you know, century of living on this planet. Uh, you look at the agri-hoods and things of that nature where people are starting to look at, let's just produce our, the food that we need locally and have, you know, have that be a feature of the, the developments that we're making. Well, if you're going to be producing agriculture at a, at a reasonable density inside you know, urban or suburban areas, you need a lot of technology to be able to, to get the uh, economy of scale efficiency and make sure that it is actually, you know, when you're hungry, there is food growing, right? So you have to balance those things out. So as we start to define what the, the user's requirements are for, for living in this next century, we'll be able to focus in more on what the features and, and experience that those things will go through. And from there, we start to then spin off the products and, and the design of these homes uh, in a way that's in concert with the, this overall goal of of creating that that modern 21st century uh, life, which ultimately, uh, you know, despite the upheaval and the missteps and things like that, should probably be pretty amazing. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of possibility in terms of improved quality of life. Uh, that kind of leads us into this kind of overall question I want to ask. Uh, mm-hmm. This year at uh, ETS 18, our, our theme is Dream and Digital. So I guess this is a question for everybody. How do you see people getting absorbed into a digital energy future, both in their home and in a virtual space? Well, one thing that I think of when I think of the smart home, the connected home, is this Disney Channel movie from 1999. I don't know how many Disney Channel viewers... Lizzie McGuire. ...are... are listening to our podcaster, Jared. I know that you have kids. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but it's, it's called Smart House, and it came out in 99. And the premise of the movie is this family. Um, it's a young kid, probably in middle school, with a, and then a, a, a girl, a daughter who's in elementary school, and their mom had just passed away. So it's a single dad, and the middle school boy ends up taking on a lot of the chores of the house, the role that the mom was playing. And he didn't have time to do regular kid things. So he enters into this contest to win um, a smart house. And he ends up winning and then move in. And the operating system of the house is named Pat. So and she has this womanly voice and they interact with her and she does everything that they could possibly conceive a smart home could do back in 1999, which was actually a lot of things. I think in one part of the movie um the dad's out of town and pat the operating system helps the kids throw a party and they make a big mess and then the dad is about to come home and she somehow absorbs all of the trash and then all of a sudden in a matter of 30 seconds this massive mess is just gone and so this is happening back in 1999 this is how people are perceiving what a smart home is going to be but later on the movie develops and the kid somehow messes with pat the operating system and she becomes advanced she has these learning capabilities and ends up getting jealous of the father's love interest and actually locks down the house um, doesn't let them out. No one can come in. And it's just like kind of this horrible worst case scenario of the smart home. Did Kubrick direct this film? 
Um, so when I think of the smart home, I watched this movie when I was probably five or six and then probably again when I was in middle school. So I really understood what was actually going on. That does influence the way I think about the smart home. Like the smart home is going to do everything my mom can do, right? Like it can turn Mm -hmm. off the oven. It can help me clean up a mess. It can wake my little sister up in the morning. I think when it comes to like comfortability, I just expect that eventually the smart home is going to get to the point where it's just going to know what I want it to do. It kind of reminds me of Zuckerberg and his real Jarvis that shoots his t-shirts mm-hmm. out at him in the morning, plays him music, reads his kid a bedtime story. But I don't know, you know, when that's going to hit scale. But I think the role that advanced analytics and machine learning is going to play in the connected home is really going to influence the way consumers have expectations for the connected home. Oh, certainly. And AI is a, is a whole interesting world. Uh, I mean, a lot of the, the leading AI companies, um, when they, especially when they put uh, the AIs on the Internet to learn about human interactions and things like that, the AI has become incredibly sexist and racist within like 24 hours. They've just become unbelievably vulgar uh, creations based around a lot of the inherent biases and and uh and failings of just human language in general and, and human behavior so we're we're while we're creating this this smart world and all that stuff we're going to have the mirror sort of shine to us a little bit about what is what are we actually doing right you know how, how many times are we you know yelling at our kids to clean up the room versus bedtime stories i mean we have an idyllic sort of you for for how we want everything to work and maybe with taking away a lot of the, the you know the mundane stuff will will free up a lot of our uh a lot of our best uh the best of us right because a lot of those frustrations and 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 challenges will go away but at the same time we're we're seeing this already in a lot of american industries where the automation and things like that is replacing you know huge areas of the the american economy with with automation uh, you know, Foxconn, who makes uh, iPhones, um, two years ago bought, I think, a million robots to replace the bulk of their workforce with robotics because of all the problems they've had and, and, and all that. So as we get into this more and more automated world, it's going to create other things. So, well, what if 40 to 50% of the jobs are, you know, uh, on, on their way out? What do we do with our time? What do we? How do we? How do we create a society that is sustainable at a social and economic and, and environmental level? As a lot of these these things that we had to do, now we don't, which is great, but it creates you know other challenges uh, associated with that. That's assuming that AI, which uh, is entertaining uh, and uh, occasionally dazzling, but is also still very much in its infancy. Um, and I, you, you talked about the, the personalization and all that. I think that the best uh, example of that is the onboarding process in the movie Her. Um, I don't know if you, you've seen that, but uh, it asks like one question: "Tell me about your mother." And it's like, "Well, why? Why do you? I, you know, I don't know." And then he just kind of mumbles through it, and then all of a sudden it's like, "Okay, thank you. We've onboarded you. We know exactly who you are and exactly who you need." And um, it, it was it was just such a perfect example of how a really smart system can learn everything about you know our, our our sort of flawed humanity in you know 
three seconds. That's all I need to know about you to, to be able to match your personality with, uh, you know, Scarlett Johansson. Christine, do you have any movie metaphors about the digital future? <laughs> well, Jared was talking earlier about people not wanting to feel old. And, mm. and Aaron Hardick starts talking about a movie that, you know, she saw when she was five or six in, in 1999. And <laughs> I was, I was an adult at that point. So I, I definitely, really feeling old here. That's my job is to make you feel bad, Christine. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think those are two really good ways Movies? of. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm. I was on a different train of thought than you. Oh, I, I no, I think those are really two good movies um, uh, of the ways to look at things. And I mean, yeah, they're 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 not necessarily going to be what reality is, but they bring up what Jared mentioned of the com the complexity. Right, um, you do one thing in one area, and it changes something somewhere else that you didn't necessarily expect. So I think that's just something to keep in mind: is just these changes that we make. You know, we may think we're just making it in the home, but there are these implications that go through a, a lot of different things, whether it's connecting to the broader community or how people are, you know, living their lives and interacting with their families. And we, we just have to be aware of that as, as we move forward with a lot of these these new technologies and, and AI and, and all of that. I mean, the thing about the dream in digital is that there is more to it than the novelty. Uh, we, you know... It's really cool if we can have, you know, AI being our moms or being our girlfriends, like in those movies. But at the very least, what we're seeing now is that it can do something like, like you said, save you 20 bucks on your electricity bill. It can, uh, it, it can help your utility predict an outage uh, a little bit quicker so that, you know, so that you're without, not without power for all that long. And it can just keep the temperature in your house appropriate for whatever time of, for whatever time of day it is just all, all these little all these little things that make our that make our lives easier and that make our, our services and our products more efficient in this industry kind of put a little bow on it indeed i mean it's efficiency it's effectiveness uh it's quality of life it's you know, uh, adaptability to, to a changing world. It, it's interesting. I think that the technology is actually moving so fast that people who are dreaming are having a hard time keeping up. You know, there's drone taxis um, being uh, piloted right now in Dubai. That was not really even conceivable five years ago that that would be an actual thing that is, that is actually happening right now. You know, with the rise of, you know, quantum-based computing and, and the advanced AI and, and encryption things that come with that, you're going to see these uh, these digital products reach a, a um, I think a very rapid acceleration in the next five to ten years, and you know I think that the the uh, the ability to to have dreams manifest in a very short amount of time is only going to accelerate, um, and that's going to be very disorienting. You know, um, a lot of people are going to have. Uh, challenges and hopefully there won't be many nightmares, uh, digital nightmares and things like that. But the, the the reality is that much, much will be possible and people will be able to live better with less. Um, and that will be a democratizing agent, of, even though the luxury or the, the sort of the high-end consumer will, will be the first adopters. Just like uh, the iPhone after 10 years, so iPhones are things that are, are are becoming much more within reach, um, you know, across the world and, and things like that. So I, I think that 
that the dreams will ultimately sort of move us towards a better place. But we do need to remember that it's not about the digital, it's about the humans at the center of that uh, ecosystem that will will uh, define whether these things are, these endeavors are, are successful or, or not. We're, we're, we're running a little long, so I think it's a good place to, to leave it. Uh, but thank you very much for coming on, Jared. We really appreciate your insight. And it really seems like we're heading into a bright future of a technology-driven energy industry. Uh, how can people find out more about you and about Daito? Uh, you can go to our website, uh, daitodesign.com. Uh, we're very much an energy-focused uh, design firm, uh, working with clients around the world. And uh, we, we really do uh, enjoy helping traditional companies uh, create either cultures of innovation or, or tackle some uh, you know, very tactical uh, innovation projects. So um, that would be the first step. All right. Thank you very much uh, for coming on. It was a uh, really high concept conversation we had, and we really appreciate. We really appreciate you. It was really my pleasure, and uh, I really, really enjoy what you guys are doing at ETS. So uh, you'll definitely see me there next year. Oh, excellent. Well, well, we look forward to seeing seeing you soon. Uh, well, that will do it for us here at Z Prime on the Grid. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Christine and Aaron for ha for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Dylan. I really liked uh, today's topic, and I like talking about movies in 1999 to make uh, my boss feel old. We didn't even bring up The Matrix. That's like the oh. tech movie of 1999. I remember The Matrix. <laughs> you weren't old enough to remember. I've that. seen The Matrix, Christine. Mm. Oh, well, oh, goodness. Really well, um, if I haven't been fired by next week for bullying my boss, um, hopefully I'll be on the next episode. If you want to find the research and webinar we were talking about, you can head on over to ETSinsights.com. Uh, if you want to find out about the Energy Thought Summit uh, 2018, or if you want to register, go to ETS18.co. You can find all three of us on social media under our names. Thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Dylan Lockwood, and we'll see you next time. Bye.